Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing Buddhist chanting and how we can use Buddhist chanting to improve our practice of meditation and ultimately improve the condition of our mind through actually using Buddhist chanting. But before we get into Buddhist chanting, what I would like to do is actually spend some time talking about the Eightfold Path. This is part of chapter five and something that we discussed in this group learning program a good four months ago. And I think this would be a great time to kind of dive into the Eightfold Path, discuss it to a certain level of detail, provide you guys an opportunity to ask some questions about the Eightfold Path. And then once we're done with that, move into discussing Buddhist chanting. Because Buddhist chanting is part of our practice, our life practice that we're building and creating in order to move the mind towards enlightenment, this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And in order to do that, our actual life practice is the Eightfold Path. That is the way to enlightenment that the Buddha shared with us. So I think it would make a lot of sense for us here, now that we covered the Eightfold Path, a good three or four months ago to actually go back into it, discuss it, and give you an opportunity to get some clarifications. In fact, it's really impossible to understand the Eightfold Path in too much detail. The more that you learn and understand the Eightfold Path, the better. You could listen to a a discussion or a talk on the Eightfold Path three, four, five, 10, 20, 30 times because this literally is the core teaching of Gautama Buddha where everything else plugs into it. So in terms of developing a life practice, the path that leads to Nibbana, the book that we're using to guide our program, that is the life practice. The Eightfold Path is the life practice. So I'd like to spend some time today discussing that and giving you guys a chance to ask questions. The Eightfold Path starts with right view and it goes all the way through to right concentration. It's broken into three kind of high-level summaries, which you see as wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. I'm going to work my way through these eight steps and discuss them to a certain level of detail, but remember there's always more detail available for you if you would like to ask questions. And the way that you do that, if you're on Facebook or YouTube, is just type your question into the comment section and our moderator, Max, will ask that during the question period. And 
if you're in the virtual classroom, you can also type it into the comment section or you can electronically raise your hand and ask the question yourself. And if there's any follow-up questions to the questions that I receive, you guys are welcome to ask those as well. So every so often here, we'll actually pause and just take questions and see what questions or clarifications you guys need for guidance, areas that you would maybe like to explore more deeply. So starting with right view. Right view is having the right view of the world, essentially. It is the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are essentially four truths that the Buddha shared that help us to understand kind of the beginning part of this path. And without understanding right view, a practitioner would have zero ability to actually learn and practice all the rest of the Buddhist teachings. There is so much that is built on top of right view. And this is the reason why it starts out the path. Because without right view, a practitioner would have no hopes or ability to learn and practice the rest of the path to even reach to enlightenment. And this is also why Gautama Buddha's very first talk was about the Four Noble Truths. So let's discuss the way that I talk about the Four Noble Truths and give you guys a chance to ask any questions that you might have. The first Noble Truth that I talk about is what I call discontentedness or all unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness. What discontentedness is, is three feelings. You will typically hear people describe this as suffering when they talk about Gautama Buddha's teachings, but I don't use the word suffering, and I think you'll understand why as we talk about what discontentedness is. Essentially, what the word that we have in the original teachings of the Buddha is dukkha, and various people use different words to describe what dukkha is. And most often what you hear is suffering. But because of impermanence, not everybody explains it in the same way. So the way that I explain dukkha or discontentedness is a painful feeling, a pleasant feeling, and a feeling that is neither painful nor pleasant. This is what is described in the teachings that I have as really good quality translations from a reliable source here in Thailand. What painful feelings are, are things like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. All of these feelings that we experience in the unenlightened mind are quite painful. Then there's pleasant feelings. These are feelings like happiness or excitement or elation, right? These are pleasant feelings. Then there's feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. I would describe loneliness or boredom, shyness, in that neither painful nor pleasant. Essentially, it's uncomfortable. Kind of like if you were sitting on public transportation, somebody came and sat really, really close to you that you don't know. It's not painful. It's not pleasant. It's neither painful nor pleasant. It's kind of like uncomfortable or displeasing to the mind. That's what neither painful nor pleasant is. And all of these feelings are a discontent mind or discontented or discontentedness. Painful feelings, pleasant feelings, 
and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And these feelings arise in the mind based on some condition, right? So for painful feelings, sadness, for example, there's going to be some condition, right? You might hear that you lost your job or you might hear that your friend died or you might have any number of things. Maybe somebody talked to you in a hostile way and that caused sadness in the mind, right? Because there's some condition, something is creating that. It's our craving, our desire, our attachment, which we'll talk about in a bit, but essentially there's some condition that's causing that feeling of sadness or anger or frustration or irritation or annoyance or guilt or shame or fears. And same thing with the happiness or excitement or elation. There's some condition that's causing that. Maybe you got a new job, so you're happy. Or maybe you got a new boyfriend or girlfriend, or maybe you got a new pair of clothes, or maybe you got a new phone or something like this. That condition is causing the happiness or the excitement or the elation. And then same thing with the feelings of neither painful nor pleasant. There's some condition that's creating these feelings. So the very first of the Four Noble Truths that I describe is all unenlightened minds will experience discontentedness. An unenlightened mind will experience all of these feelings. And here you notice that I didn't use the word suffering. And the reason why is because suffering explains, I feel, this first type of discontentedness or this first type of dukkha, which is painful feelings. However, if I was happy or I was excited or I was elated, I wouldn't say that I was suffering. And likewise, with neither painful nor pleasant, if I was shy, if I was experiencing shyness, I wouldn't say that I was suffering, but the word that I feel matches more closely to what the Buddha was teaching is discontentedness or discontented or discontent. Because when the mind is happy or excited or elated, it's discontent. The energy is up pretty high. We can have certain things happen to us and we can kind of lose our awareness of our mind and we can have unfortunate things happen to us during those situations. And then likewise, when there's shyness, there's a little bit of anxiety there, maybe a little bit of fear. The mind is discontent, but it's not suffering, right? So that's why the word discontent or discontented or discontentedness feels much closer to what I understand the Buddha was teaching in terms of this first important teaching of dukkha or discontentedness because the goal of these teachings in order to reach to the enlightened mind is to eliminate discontentedness or to eliminate dukkha so that we eliminate the sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, that we eliminate this unbridled happiness, this unbridled excitement, this you know, elation that just comes and goes. And then when it's gone, we kind of drop out and hit the bottom and feel so sad and kind of empty almost. And eliminate these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, like loneliness or boredom or shyness. These feelings 
are also discontent and we can actually train the mind to eliminate these. But the first noble truth is all about unenlightened beings will experience discontentness of mind. Okay, so that's the first part of right view. The second noble truth, which is part of right view, is we cause discontentedness in the mind because the mind craves permanence. The mind has this craving, this desire, this attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. It craves something. The mind really wants that new job. It really wants it. It really wants it. It craves it. And the mind just feels if I can just get that new job, everything will be just fine. And either we don't get the job and then the mind becomes sad or we may actually get the job and then we feel so excited we feel so happy we feel so elated and then we start the job and a couple of weeks or a couple of months later we start to not really feel good about it anymore we start seeing all the problems and we start seeing all the difficulties in this new job and all of a sudden the salary that we thought was so wonderful all of a sudden because our expenses have increased it doesn't quite satisfy the mind anymore because the mind went up on this really high ride of happiness and excitement and then because that condition is impermanent it's not permanent then the mind comes crashing back down at some point with sadness or boredom or loneliness and things like this so essentially the mind has this longing this strong eagerness this craving this desire this attachment wanting things expecting things craving for things to be our way and when they're not that's when the mind becomes discontent or the mind is essentially wanting everything to be permanent but we know from the world around us and what the buddha helps us to understand is that there is no permanence so because the mind craves permanence and it tries to latch on and hold on to things like relationships, when that relationship is over, maybe we decide to go a different way or maybe our mom or dad or grandmother or grandpa or our children die. And then when that person dies, the mind doesn't like that change. It doesn't like impermanence. The mind has this longing and this strong eagerness for permanence. And when something changes, the mind becomes discontent. So this is the second noble truth that essentially we are causing, our mind is causing its own discontent feelings. All of those painful, pleasant, neither painful nor pleasant feelings are all being caused by the mind. And the beauty in the second noble truth is that the third noble truth we know that we can actually eliminate this discontent mind and the reason why we can eliminate it is because we're the ones who are causing it that's the beauty in this practice is that we can actually attain this enlightened mental state where we eliminate the discontent mind because we are the ones who are actually causing it so the third noble truth is that we can eliminate the discontent mind by eliminating the craving, desire, attachment. Essentially, 
by training the mind to eliminate that mental longing with a strong eagerness for things to be permanent, we can actually train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because we can remove those conditions that the mind then looks for and longs for and tries to hold on to in order to seek its happiness or its excitement or its elation. We can let those things go. Still, we're going to have pleasant experiences. We're going to have laughter. We're going to have happy things that happen in our life. But we can train the mind not to long for that, not to crave it, not to desire it, not to have this strong eagerness and, and kind of dwell in those happy, excited, elated feelings. The mind realizes in the enlightened state that those things are all impermanent and we can quickly, easily bring the mind back to the middle. So the third noble truth is that we can eliminate the discontent mind by eliminating the craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. Then the fourth noble truth is the way leading to the complete elimination of a discontent mind is the Eightfold Path. In the fourth noble truth, the Buddha explains to us that the Eightfold Path is the way, it is the training, it is the path forward that is how you train the mind in order to eliminate this discontentedness. And it's essentially the Eightfold Path is his central core teaching that everything else plugs into. So in these four statements, the first noble truth, all unenlightened beings will experience discontentedness. This is the problem. The Buddha is explaining the problem to us. All unenlightened beings will experience discontent feelings. That's the problem. The cause of the problem is that we cause our own discontent mind because the mind craves for permanence when everything is impermanent. That's the cause. The mind has this longing and strong eagerness. The solution to the problem is to eliminate the craving, the desire, the attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. Eliminate that from the mind. And this is where meditation is going to come in in our chanting that we're going to discuss later. And then the fourth noble truth, we essentially get the entire path forward that this is the complete solution to the discontent mind. So it's right view that is essentially teaching us to take responsibility for our own discontent feelings, our anger, our sadness, our frustration, our irritation, our guilt, our shame, our fears, our happiness, our excitement, our elation, our loneliness, our boredom, shyness, resentment, jealousy, any feelings that are in the mind that arise by taking responsibility for those, realizing that we are the ones who are generating that, not blaming other people, but accepting responsibility for that, then we have right view. If we accept responsibility and we see that we are in fact causing all these discontent feelings, then we have right view and we can actually do something about it. If we blame that 
all these discontent feelings are from somebody else that he made me angry or she made me frustrated my boss makes me annoyed if we believe that and you think that and you don't see the truth in these four noble truths then you're not yet practicing and understanding right view because you think that it's somebody else that's actually causing the mind to be discontent but to practice right view and to see it as truth you need to take these teachings that i'm sharing with you and put them into practice so that you can see that when you're angry frustrated irritated annoyed all these discontent feelings that i've been sharing that you are actually causing it yourself you are responsible for it but the again the beauty in that is that once you see that and you know that to be true then you can take steps to eliminate it that's right view and i would like to just pause here because it's such an important foundational teaching i would like to pause and see if there's questions on right view before we move on i'd like to ask a question david so i think one of the main issues with our society the way it's structured is that we try to have pleasure without pain and that causes all kinds of problems but is it actually possible to have pleasure without pain yes it is possible to have pleasure without pain however what happens with the enlightened mind is we enjoy that pleasure so much that we crave it and we chase it and we keep chasing it and chasing it and chasing it with our central organs right with our eyes our nose our mouth our ears physical contact on the body we chase these pleasures in life and because we crave them and desire them with this longing and strong eagerness that's when we get discontent because we can't always have the objects of our affection it's not possible to always acquire what it is that we want and then even once we acquire it if we do acquire it then that's impermanent as well so that's going to be gone so the problem is is that the mind keeps chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing if it doesn't get what it wants it becomes hostile angry frustrated irritated annoyed what have you because we can't have everything that we want all the time things don't always go the way we expect the way we want but then even if we get what we want and the mind has this certain happiness or excitement it's all temporary because we've latched our happiness these pleasant feelings onto this object of our affection whether it's a certain possession or relationship or some intangible thing that we've been chasing after that thing is impermanent and once it's gone then that condition is removed it's now impermanent and now the mind becomes discontent again and now it wants to chase after something else so in the unenlightened state if we're chasing pleasure there's going to be pain but once you remove this chasing in this attempt to dwell in the pleasant feelings you remove those conditions and you train the mind to not have the craving in that chasing that latching on to things for external pleasures then the mind can actually experience joyful feelings but they're permanent because they're not based on any particular condition there's no condition that's causing the joy 
So therefore, since there's no condition that's causing the joy, the joy is just inherently there. That means that it's not impermanent because it's not based on some condition that is eventually going to be removed as part of the impermanence. Got it, right. So it's really in this wanting, this attachment, this craving that pleasure-seeking creates problems. I think that's yes. maybe where the, the modern understanding, you know, this is why we often use the word suffering where instead of dukkha, which doesn't capture the full range of what Gautama Buddha was really talking about. Right, and, and, that, and that's where the happiness, right? Like we chase that happiness because what we're kind of taught in modern culture is that everyone should chase happiness. That's what we're kind of programmed to do. Everyone wants to be happy. I want to be happy. I want to be happy. I want to be happy. And the more you chase happiness, the more unhappy people become, right? Because we're chasing this impermanent happiness and people don't realize that we're kind of programmed to do that. And then it goes even a step further that we're kind of given this image that happiness equals a certain income, certain material possessions, certain position in society, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, children, whatever it may be. There's a certain image that's held out and says, if you attain this, you will be happy. So we all kind of chase after that. And then a lot of people, once they get there, they might be happy for a little bit, but then it's gone. And then the craving goes up higher and then they want more and they want more and they want more. So this capitalism, not that there's anything wrong with trying to grow our economy and, you know, build up things. But essentially what's happened is people have been programmed to chase after happiness and then assign happiness to materialism and monetary wealth. And this is why a lot of people are just kind of tapping out and saying, I can't take this anymore. I'm just chasing after almost an unrealistic expectation. And the mind can never just reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content because it's always chasing after something. You know, once we get that $50,000 a year job, then it wants 75, then it gets that, and then it wants 100. Then it gets that, it wants 150. Or we get, you know, one particular possession or relationship and we want another one and another one and another one. And the mind just keeps chasing this high almost. And it can never be peaceful, calm, serene, and content because it's always got this outward searching for external happiness, which is impermanent. And that's why the mind becomes discontent. Yes, and there's also a kind of unpleasantness in the ending of something pleasant i think that the buddha even said uh, dissociation from the pleasant is dukkha or some words to that effect so it's not merely that you experience something pleasant and then it's over it's actually that you experience something pleasant and then you experience the pain of it leaving sure so because of the guarantee this yeah sorry yeah because, because of the impermanent nature of that pleasant thing so that would be the unenlightened mind. But like, for example, I taught my son how to do the Rubik's Cube over the last week or two because I figured out how to do it with a YouTube video. So he was like, hey, can you teach me? And his mom was like, hey, can you teach him? And so I taught him over the course of several days. So 
I feel joy that I taught it to him, but if he didn't learn it or he wasn't interested or he chose to not learn it, you know, give up at some point and he didn't want to go for it, I wouldn't have been discontent because of it because I was here to teach him. If he's interested, he asked to learn it, so I decided to teach him, but I wasn't latching my joy onto what he does or what he doesn't do. But right. it's joyful now because I see him playing the Ruby's Cube and he's he's actually better than me now. He's you know doing it even faster than me. And it's like, oh, cool, he's, he can do it. But that's not why I'm joyful. It's not latched onto that. But there's some pleasant feelings to see that he can do the Ruby's Cube. But if he didn't do it or someday when he stops doing the Ruby's Cube and he decides he doesn't want to do it anymore, I'm not going to be upset or irritated. Same thing like last year, I think I bought him a bicycle and it was nice to buy him a bicycle. I was fortunate that I had done some work on the side and I was able to afford to buy him a little bicycle. And it's nice to see him ride his bicycle, but someday if he chooses not to ride it or he outgrows it or he crashes it or gives it away, I'm not going to be sad about that because it's like, here, this is your bicycle. Just take it, it's for you and just, would like to give you something. So I haven't latched my pleasant feelings onto his bicycle, but it's kind of nice that I was able to do that for him. But there isn't this kind of overwhelming happiness and excitement, like every time he gets on his bicycle and trying to like, come on, you've got to play with it more. I, I bought it for you and now you haven't played with it for the last week. Why don't you play with it? You know, there's not this kind of forceful behavior that I'm seeking some kind of happiness by watching him play on his bicycle. It's just, it was done, here's your bicycle, and okay, enjoy it, it's over. So it's all about how you latch the mind on and crave and chase after that happiness for some particular situation or event or object of your affection. Got it, thanks David. And mm -hmm. I can see that Bill's hand is up, so I'm gonna ask to unmute you, Bill. Thank you. Um, Good, good discussion and, and good timing for, for me to hear um, what we're talking about tonight. Um, my question, I guess, is, so I'm, I'm working through some discontentedness uh, quite a bit. Uh, um, and it has to do with, you know, you can probably hear way cow road, <laughs> my speaker. Um, I... The older I get, the more I, I enjoy peace and quiet. And, you know, I moved from my old building because I could always hear my neighbors. It was very, very bad soundproofing. Um, so I moved to an older building where I don't have the problem of hearing my neighbors now because my unit is facing Waycow Road. Um, I'm, I'm dealing with external outside the building noises and I guess my question is I understand that um, I'm I'm bring you know it, it it's my attachment to to a certain noise or, or lack of noise right I'm attached to that um, and, and as as the discussion was going going along I was kind of reflecting on other situations and, and so my question is, because I understand the right view, I understand the, the connection there. Um, 
my question is, is it common as, as we learn more about the Eightfold Path and the path in, in general to discover themes uh, that kind of run through our lives? Because um, I, I, I'm thinking about other situations where, um, you know, I stayed at a resort and um, there was a club across the street and the noise you know, and I had this expectation because I paid this amount of money, you know, uh, all over, you know, diff different places. I've traveled quite a bit. And so, um, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm not sure if there is a question there, but it, it would be, is it, I guess it would be, is it common to discover general underlying issues? <laughs> Yeah, I think I see where you're going and I think I understand what you need to hear at this point. Okay. So, Thank you. yeah, so yes, it definitely sounds like you know that you prefer to be in a more quiet environment. And that's something that you've learned about yourself. And this is wisdom. This is wisdom that the mind that you have just prefers not to be around loud kind of ruckish noises. There's nothing wrong with that right? That you've learned that about yourself. You now have that wisdom. What you need to practice is what we call protecting your doorways to discontentedness, right? Or protecting your own contentedness. If you have that wisdom that you prefer a quiet living environment, then the way that you protect your contentedness is you make wise choices to be in environments where there isn't noise. But because everything is impermanent, as you travel around the world, there's going to come time when you are in a hotel room where there's noise. And at that point, that's where you've got to also practice protecting your own contentedness, but also recognize impermanence and not get discontent. So for example, making good choices based on this wisdom that you would like to be in peaceful environments in terms of your living space. And that's what you thought you had done in this new living space. And maybe you choose to make some other choices and move out of this place and go somewhere else. And you will probably take even more time to really make sure this next one is like super good. Maybe you want to visit it at different times during the day you know, morning, afternoon, evening, visit it over a couple of different days and just kind of evaluate whether this place is really truly the place that you would like to now move to. So with that wisdom that you prefer a more quiet place, you can make wise choices like that of visiting this place multiple times before you kind of sign a lease and even talk to some of the neighbors, talk to the, the manager of the condo complex and different people and maybe do a little bit more of a thorough job. So that's one part of it, right? And then the next part is say you land in a hotel room someday and it is loud. And rather than getting discontent and frustrated and irritated and banging on the wall or knocking on the next door neighbor's door and it turns into a fight and an argument and a commotion, which can turn bad for you if the situation happens that way. In that situation, you can still protect your contentedness, but do it in a peaceful, calm, serene and content way where maybe you choose to call down to 
the hotel front desk. Maybe you choose to ask if there's another room that you could move to, that there's some noise next door and being polite and friendly and using right speech that you don't want to cause harm. You don't want to talk negatively about these people in the other room and disparage them or slander them or gossip them because they're in their own life and they're doing their own thing. And we've probably caused noise to other people in our past as well. So we use this path that we're talking about today as a way to practice to protect the contentedness. So by using things like right intention, right speech, right action, then you can actually move in a direction that could be more peaceful for you. But should you call down to that hotel front desk and they're like, sir, we're completely booked. We have no other option but to go up there and talk to them. And maybe you choose to say, okay, well, whatever you guys would like to do is up to you. It's 2 a.m. and it's quite loud here. You know, you handle that conversation however you handle it. But what you don't want to do is get angry, frustrated, irritated, annoyed, because that's just causing the mind to be discontent. And perhaps you might have to go through a night without sleeping. And that's the impermanent nature of sleep that you're not always every single day going to be able to sleep necessarily. But if the mind craves it and the mind wants that permanence and it has to have that sleep and it's going to get grumpy and it's going to get frustrated and it's going to act out and show everybody how big of a guy I am because I'm not getting my sleep and how dare you infringe on my sleep, then that's going to cause problem. So sometimes people think that Buddhists are passive and just kind of let whatever happens happens. That's not really true. In a situation like that where maybe you're in a hotel and there's too loud of sounds coming, you can take actions to resolve that conflict in that situation, but you do it through practicing right speech rather than calling down to the front desk, being angry, being hostile and trying to force your way necessarily, you're more talking politely, kindly, and kind of gradually trying to move the employees in a direction that would be helpful for you. So this is what it means to practice the teachings because not everything's always going to go the way we expect or the way that we want. And we need to learn these teachings so that then we can practice on a daily basis in order to apply these teachings and situations that will be helpful for us and improve the situation, but always remembering to protect our own contentedness. And that comes with discernment, wise decisions, in order to practice protecting our own contentedness. Does that help answer your question, Bill? Yes, that was extremely helpful david thank you for taking the time but thank you okay great all right so right view it's these four noble truths accepting responsibility realizing that we're causing our own discontent mind because of this craving for permanence this longing this strong eagerness to have things go our way and when they don't the mind becomes discontent right or if we lose something that is ours, like, you know, if the mind thinks that this is my phone, this is 
my wife or my grandfather, my mother, when these things are gone because they're all impermanent, then the mind becomes discontent. And usually the stronger the longing, the stronger the eagerness for wanting something, the more discontent the mind's going to be. Whereas if it's just something simple, we might just kind of be irritated and then we kind of let it go after a few minutes or a few hours. But if it's something that the mind really wants significantly and it has such a longing and strong eagerness for, that's where we get into anger, hostility, aggression, all of these very strong discontent feelings. Understanding and practicing right view is so important because if we thought that everyone else was the problem, then why would we ever do anything to train our mind, right? This whole practice of the path to enlightenment is about training our mind because we can eliminate the discontent mind. But if we utterly thought that all this anger and frustration and irritation and all these discontent feelings that I talked about is being caused by somebody else, then that person's gonna go around and try to train everybody else to do things their way, right? And you may have even done this and you might still be doing this today. You might be trying to get your children or your partner or your people at work to do everything your way. And you feel in the mind, you have this longing and this eagerness that if I could just get everyone to do it my way, then I'll be fine. But the problem is, is that you're never gonna be able to get everybody to do it your way and your mind's just gonna keep being discontent because there's 7.5 billion people in the world and there's no way that you can train everyone in the world to do things your way. So that's why the beauty is you only have to train one mind. You only have to train your mind and that's gonna be challenging enough. So if you just take that responsibility, realizing that you're causing your own discontent mind, then it's just a matter of learning and practicing these teachings, this path, and you can gradually train your mind in the direction of an enlightened mind, okay? So the second step of the Eightfold Path is right intention. Some people call this right thought or right thinking. What this is is right intention is having the intention to do no harm, essentially practicing harmlessness, okay? Non-ill will not causing harm to other beings. This is another foundational teaching of the Buddhas, and this is the reason why with right view and right intention together, this makes up the wisdom. Because if you realize that in right view that you're causing all your discontent mind, and in right intention you practice harmlessness, where you don't cause harm to other beings, then you've got the wisdom that you need to move through the rest of the path. And the reason why we practice harmlessness is because we understand the natural law of gamma, cause and effect or action and result. Essentially what the natural law of gamma is, is it's the result of our decisions. When we make good wholesome decisions, we have good wholesome results. And when we make unwholesome decisions, we have unwholesome results. So if we cause harm, for example, using the example that I used with Bill, if we're in a hotel room and there's a neighbor next door causing a little bit of noise and we get aggressive, we get hostile, we get angry, we start pounding on the wall, go knocking on the door, trying to show them who we are, well, this isn't gonna turn out very well 
because now we're kind of putting harm into the world and this is going to cause problems in the world and therefore those problems are going to be returned back to us right so a practitioner who's on this path is always going to be looking for ways to practice harmlessness right and the whole rest of this path that the buddha lays out for us is essentially showing you how to practice harmlessness he's essentially using right speech right action right livelihood and the rest to show you how to practice harmlessness through our moral conduct specifically so for example with right speech he doesn't tell you the exact words to use because you're a being with free will you need to be able to make your own choices about what type of speech to use and what word choice and what phrasing whether you're trying to accomplish some beneficial thing for your personal life or your professional life you need to be able to choose your own language but what the buddha does is he gives us these core teachings which helps to awaken the mind or enlighten the mind about the type of speech that we would prefer to use and if we speak in this way we won't be causing any harm and what he provides us is the five factors of well-spoken speech and what he shares in that teaching is that when we speak everything we say should be spoken at the right time right there's a right time and place for speaking and we should make sure that we're speaking at the right time. The second one is everything we say should be the truth. We should always speak the truth. In fact, Gautama Buddha spoke the truth so much that even when he told a joke, he never told a lie. He says this in his teachings, that even when he tells a joke, he will not speak a lie because you want to be a true speaker, someone to be relied on, someone that is not a deceiver of the world someone that is dependable and trustworthy so by speaking truthfully you will build that reputation with the people around you and then the third factor of the five factors of well-spoken speech is to speak gently right speak gently not with harsh heavy words speak gently and then the fourth one is speak beneficially speak with benefit purposeful speech right we need to speak with purpose in a beneficial way that benefits other beings right if we just kind of have idle chatter we're just chit-chatting blah 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 this is unpurposeful speech and it doesn't benefit anybody so therefore people aren't going to be really interested in talking with us much if we just are speaking in a way that's unbeneficial to others so we need to speak in a beneficial way and then the fifth factor is we need to speak with a mind of loving kindness a mind of loving kindness is active goodwill towards all beings right you could actually speak at the right time you could say something that's true you could speak gently and you could speak beneficially but if it's not with a mind of loving kindness then it's going to cause harm and one of the things that I think about is sarcasm. A lot of times when we speak with sarcasm, it might be the right time, it might be truthful, it might be gentle, because we're really slick with our sarcasm, right? And it may even be considered beneficial. 
but is it from a mind of active goodwill towards all beings, right? So we don't speak with gossip or slander or lies, deceit. Deceit is like you know something is the truth and you know the truth, but you don't quite divulge the truth because you know that that's going to be unfavorable for you in a certain situation, right? That's what deceit is, kind of like hiding the truth, misrepresenting the truth. And the Buddha went on in this teaching of the five factors of well-spoken speech and said we should speak in a way that's blameless, right? That doesn't blame other people. Because remember, back to right view, is we accept responsibility for everything in terms of our conduct. So we shouldn't blame other people in our speech because when we do, it's going to incite aggravation. It's going to incite irritation potentially on the other person. So if we speak in this way, our words cannot be rejected by the wise. So if you train your mind gradually more and more and more to speak at the right time, what you say is true, spoken gently, beneficially, with a mind of loving kindness and without blame, then you will notice that your personal and professional relationships will blossom more and more and more. And because you're not causing harm when you speak in this way, this will slowly, gradually work in your favor where more and more you will have healthy relationships around you where everybody always knows you speak so polite, so kindly, so warmly, so compassionately, using all these factors of well-spoken speech. And people will also speak to you that way over time, not immediately, but over time, more and more, you will see that people will speak to you in the same way. And that is where the mind becomes very peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you don't have a bunch of people walking around talking to you with hostility and aggression because that's not how you talk. So because of this natural law of gamma, cause and effect, action, result, essentially the result of your decisions by you deciding to speak with these five factors of well-spoken speech and more and more people around you, your neighbors, your friends, your family, your co-workers, and people in the community see you as somebody speaking so politely, people are going to essentially speak to you in a similar way over time. And even when they don't, you recognize that as that's them. They're not practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech, but you will maintain your practice because you know by you speaking with wrong speech, it's only going to cause harm and more harm is going to come to you. So as you start speaking this way, even if you haven't spoken this way in the past and you maybe have children or partners who are kind of used to you being more aggressive or hostile or angry, even you start speaking like this today, they're not going to immediately start talking to you politely and kindly. But over time, when they see you speaking this way, you can slowly extinguish these bad decisions that you made in the past, where now you might have people around you that speak unkind and unpolite. Over time, you will clean this up and people will speak more and more polite, friendly, and kind with you because that's what you're doing. It always starts with you. It's always your practice. 
So by you speaking in this way, it will be beneficial for you. Then we go to right action. Right action is all about bodily actions. We can cause harm not only with our speech, but we can cause harm with our bodily actions. And if we cause harm with our bodily actions, that harm is going to come back to us. And the harm that the Buddha talks about here are things like killing. We know if we kill, that's going to cause harm to another being for sure, and harm is going to come back to us. He talks about stealing, right? If we steal from somebody, that's going to cause harm and harm's gonna come back to us. If we have sexual misconduct, and he gave very detailed description of what sexual misconduct is, essentially harming people through our sexual activity, either going outside of a committed relationship, or having sex with a minor, or having sex with somebody else who's in a relationship, having sex with somebody who's decided to practice celibacy, these type of things, are going to cause harm to people with our sexual activity, so therefore harm is going to come to us. And then he also talked about taking substances that cause heedlessness or intoxication, essentially. Heedlessness is a unalertness, unattentiveness, unawareness of the mind. And why would we do that to the mind and pollute our mind if we're on this path to enlightenment? So by eliminating substances from your intake, it will reduce the harm you're causing to your own mind, so therefore you won't cause harm to others. Because when we're intoxicated, that's when we typically are causing the most harm with our speech and our actions. This is more likely that we're going to have sexual misconduct, we're more likely going to steal, we're more likely going to kill, we're more likely going to speak in untruthful ways. Intoxicants and substances that cause heedlessness lead to all kinds of problems in parts of our life. So by cleaning that up, we're then able to practice in a more pure way. Oftentimes what happens is our intentions, our speech, and our actions don't match, right? We might have the best intentions of the world of helping somebody, of practicing harmlessness. Our intentions might be very pure, but our speech and our actions come out differently. And then sometimes our intentions and our speech are a certain way, but then we don't follow it up with actions. And this can cause harm. So it's important that not only do we understand each one of these steps individually and practice them, but also we need to make sure that they're all in sync with each other so that we then become a trustworthy and dependable person through our moral conduct, which includes right livelihood. Right livelihood is how we sustain our life, right? Are we a doctor? Are we a nurse? Are we a stay-at-home dad, a stay-at-home mom? You know, what do we do with our livelihood? And the Buddha gave us five livelihoods that he said would cause harm. And if you look at these livelihoods, you can actually see how each individual one of them actually do cause harm. Indeed, they cause harm. He talked about if we sell weapons, like if we sell swords or guns or things that essentially are designed for killing, if we sell weapons, they will cause harm in the world. Therefore, it will cause harm to us. 
He also talked about selling poisons, right? Poisons are meant to kill other beings. So if we sell poisons as our occupation, then it's going to cause harm to us. He also talked about selling intoxicants, selling drugs, essentially, selling alcohol, selling things that cause heedlessness. This is going to cause harm in the world. So therefore, it's going to cause harm to us. He also talked about selling living beings, like selling animals, selling humans, like slaves, human trafficking, things like this. If we base our income on selling living beings, then it's going to cause harm in the world. And we see that with the coronavirus now that's caused harm. And the fifth one is if we sell meat, essentially, because in order to sell meat, we have to kill animals in order to sell meat. And again, this is connected to the coronavirus. So by not practicing these five occupations, then our livelihood is not connected to causing harm. So if we are a doctor, a nurse, a taxi driver, a janitor, a cook, a waiter, a waitress, any of these particular types of occupations or livelihoods wouldn't cause harm in the world. Therefore, it's not going to cause harm to us, right? So this is the moral conduct, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. I would like to pause here and see if there's any questions on any of these. So we have a question from Amina. Amina is asking about protecting our sense doors. She says, does protecting your own contentedness mean to remain serene and have right view? Yes, to a certain extent, yes. Uh, remaining serene. Protecting your own contentedness to me is more about having the wisdom of what the mind needs to be content, what things would be helpful. And in Bill's example, he prefers to have a quiet environment to live in and sleep in, which I think a lot of us can relate to. So having that wisdom, then making good decisions or having good discernment that he now makes decisions that are based on that wisdom, right? And by him understanding what his mind needs to remain peaceful, calm, serene, and content, he knows that because this is something that is important to him, that whenever he goes into a situation of a hotel or a living arrangement, that he needs to do due diligence to ensure that he's going to be in a quiet space. So for an example, in a hotel, he might want to call ahead, he might want to ask for a particular room, let them know in a kind, polite way that he prefers quiet. And if they could book out a room for him that tends to be on the quieter level, that he would really appreciate that and being kind and polite in that request. So that's what protecting your own contentedness is, is having the wisdom to know what's important for your mind. Another thing might be if you know that you're a person that needs, you know, eight hours of sleep a day. Protecting your own contentedness is making the choice to go to sleep each day with enough time that you be sure to get your eight hours of sleep. But then to what you were saying, Amina, is if for some reason you don't get your eight hours of sleep, when you wake up and you've only had four, is not using that as an excuse to not be grumpy to everybody. So practicing right view 
realizing that everything's impermanent and when you wake up that okay i didn't get my sleep last night but that doesn't mean i need to be grumpy and hostile towards people i will get some sleep tonight right so protecting your own contentedness is realizing and having the wisdom of what you need in order to maintain your content mind if you're a person who needs that eight hours of sleep and you decide to go out at night be sure that you come back and that you're able to get some sleep for your next day, that you don't go into your day with an unrested mind, right? These are the type of things that it means protecting your own contentedness, making good decisions based on the wisdom of what you need in order to maintain your content mind. Got it, okay, we've also got a question from Becky. She asks, practicing harmlessness is why I am a vegan. My question is, my family are not on this path. I feel I am not practicing harmlessness because I am the one who buys food. So when I make a purchase that is not vegan, I feel this is keeping me from harmlessness. How do I find a balance between my path and my family? Great question, Becky. So what I would share with you, and and I'm in a similar situation, you know, even my son and my wife is on this path. They still eat a little bit of meat also. So what I would suggest for you is to realize that all people are going to awaken and move on this path on their own, right? Where you might have made choices to now no longer eat meat, your family is still eating meat, but they may have made some choices of things that they no longer do that you're still doing. Right. So everybody's kind of progressing at their own pace, making their own decisions. Everybody's kind of gradually awakening at different times on different topics. So we can't force or control or, you know, push our family to do things just because we know it's the right thing to do. And we feel that it's the the best thing for them. They have to make that choice for themselves. So I think it's okay for you to continue to help your family to acquire the food that they feel is going to be best for them. Because if you didn't buy any products that they would like to eat, then you're causing harm to them. And that's going to cause conflict in your relationship. And you have to recognize that your family needs to gradually practice and decide for themselves if they're someday going to eliminate meat from their food intake. So I suggest you kind of find that middle where you're practicing not eating meat, but you also recognize that your family's not quite there yet and you need to continue to make wise choices to maintain this healthy household where you're not causing harm to your family. Uh, so that would be my suggestion for you. In my family, I buy food for myself. My wife buys food for me sometimes. I very rarely buy food for her, but every once in a while she will ask me when I'm out to buy her some food. And if she orders something with meat, I will just get it for her because that's what she's asked for. But I do see that she's kind of gradually, slowly kind of cutting down her meat. But 
I'm not trying to force her or control her or influence that. She's making those choices on her own. And what you'll realize is that that's going to keep much more harmony in your household if you allow your family members to make their own choices. And then by doing that, if someday they do choose to give up meat, it's going to be a more long-term decision. Whereas if you kind of forced them or manipulated them or you didn't buy food for them and then erupted into arguments in the household, this is going to cause problems. And even if they stopped eating meat for a month just to make mom happy, then outside they're going to kind of be eating meat, maybe feel guilty. Maybe it's not really a true decision that they're making. It's more mom kind of forcing us to do it and they haven't made the choice themselves. So the ideal situation would be that they choose on their own if they would like to slowly, gradually move away from meat. But you're going to need to be understanding that that's not going to happen when you want it, how you want it, or exactly the way you want it to be done. And because you're responsible for buying the food in the house, you're probably going to need to buy some meat or Perhaps what you do is you tell them, if you guys would like meat, go ahead and buy that and I will buy everything else, but I would prefer for you guys to buy the meat. That's another way to find the middle. If you are really conflicted about making the purchase for meat, that could be a way that you handle it. There's always, what I say, 10 million right answers in all of these situations. I just kind of gave you two maybe potential examples And maybe one of those work for you, maybe one of them don't, or maybe none of them work for you. And you come up with a third or fourth or fifth option. And this is what it means to practice. You've got to kind of find where that middle is for you, where you can be content with the decisions that you're making and your family can be content with the decisions that they're making. And that may require you to sit down and just say, hey, look, family, I love you so much. And I appreciate all that we are as a family, but I just can't bring myself to purchase any meat. And I'm really sorry about that. I will purchase everything else that you guys would like to purchase. But if you guys could just do this, and if you guys prefer to eat meat, then you know maybe you guys could purchase that by yourself if that's okay for you. And you kind of like help them see you're kind of conflicted and see if they would be willing to step forward and make those purchases on their own. And that good, healthy, open talk can provide some harmony in the family unit that I think then becomes kind of a roadmap for situations that you guys experience. Because when you're living with a family, you're never gonna be in a situation where everybody agrees on the same things. But if you guys can get used to sitting down and having very open talks with each other, about how you feel comfortable to do things as a family, and you can do that on this topic, then that becomes a blueprint of how you have future talks when certain topics come up that the family's not particularly happy with or that everybody doesn't really gel on. You kind of have this built-in methodology, so to speak, where the family feels comfortable sitting down, openly discussing concerns, And then as a family, we find a solution for how to fix this issue or this challenge that we're facing. And that can be very healthy for the family unit. Okay, James has his hand up, so we'll go to you, James. Okay, I had a quick question um, in regards to right speech. Um, 
there was a situation where the truth may um, hurt another person's feeling. Um, maybe it's an innocent situation. Um, would there be a situation where um, deceit or, um, you know, a white lie, like you're evaluating a person's clothes if they ask you that question or like, you know, a piece of art they did? Um, um, I was just wondering about um, how you would approach that generally. Yeah, so if somebody asked me about their clothes, you know, to me, somebody's clothes is their choice and whatever they choose is up to them. It wouldn't be beneficial for me to say that somebody doesn't look good. But for me, I'm at the point where I think everybody's beautiful. I think everybody's beautiful, every piece of clothes. You know, I don't really have a preference. I don't judge people in a way that, oh, that's an ugly set of clothes or that's a beautiful set of clothes. So if somebody asked me, like, what do you think of my clothes? I'd be like, oh, well, if you like it, that's all that matters. It, it's wonderful. You know, something like that. You don't have to tell them that, oh, I think that color doesn't look good or that look, you know, you could find something better because that's not necessarily beneficial in that situation. What was the other example you had there, James? Not just the clothes. It was something else. Um, well, I was just asking generally, you know, like if it was a, a piece of artwork they did, but um, mm -hmm. it sounds to me like maybe the, the answer is that a lot of these things are subjective and, um, you know, as long as that person's happy with it and, um, you know, it would be right to um, not say anything to diminish that feeling that they have. Yeah, because remember, you're practicing true love, right? And true love is active goodwill towards all beings and having this encouraging, supportive mind state where you're uplifting people, right? So in that situation, if somebody paints some artwork and it might not be artwork that you would hang on your wall, but you kind of see that their efforts, their intentions, their feeling of, wow, I've accomplished something, I've made this great artwork, then there's no need for you to say, well, it's not something I would hang on my wall, you know, because that's not going to be beneficial. That's not practicing true love where you have this genuine wish for others to be well. So you can be creative and find some other language that would be supportive and encouraging without necessarily deflating and kind of pushing them down. Right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes what I comment on is, you know, I comment on the effort and the energy. I'm like, wow, I could see where this would take you a really long time to, to paint this. And I can see you put a lot of care and uh, attention into the detail of the artwork. That's excellent, right? So you can actually encourage people and support them without necessarily deflating them and kind of showing them that you acknowledge and recognize their hard work and their efforts in the artwork. Okay, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. We have a question from DJ regarding right livelihood. Is prostitution right livelihood if you have no other choice? Well, right livelihood is part of that is about not having businesses that are based on living beings. So prostitution, human trafficking, things like this is going to cause harm, right? And this is why harm comes back, you know, for someone who finds themselves in a situation where they need to sell their body as sex, I'm not in a position to say whether it's right or wrong in terms of what your personal choices are, because for some people, 
that's the only option they have to put food in their stomach and sustain their life. But just know that if you do that occupation, that it's going to cause harm. It's going to cause harm and therefore the harm is going to come back to you. You know, with prostitution, you know, we can get STDs. Sometimes uh, people, clients get very aggressive and hostile. There's people who are sex workers who get beat up or robbed or killed or hurt. Oftentimes, even if you have a sexual career in prostitution and everything goes fairly well from a personal safety standpoint, you can have a lot of guilt and shame as part of it. So it's not about whether you should or shouldn't do it, because if you have other options, when I've spoken with people who do that as a profession, if they had other options, they would absolutely, you know, most of those people I think would prefer to have other options. But oftentimes, especially here in Thailand, men and women who sell their body for money are typically doing it because they really don't have any other options. They don't really enjoy the fact that they do it, but that's how they need to put food on the table. One of the things to keep in mind also is with prostitution, there tends to be a good amount of money involved for some people, and that can produce craving, and then the mind can get hooked to the lifestyle if they're making a lot of money in that particular field. And then it's kind of hard to get away from it because the mind doesn't want to go back to just kind of like a a normal life without kind of a more inflated income. So there's a lot of problems and complications with living beings being sold for money. And prostitution is one of those. Whether you choose to do it or not is up to you. But there are going to be harmful actions associated with that livelihood Therefore, you can expect that there's going to be harm as well. It could be physical or it could be mental that causes for you. So be aware of that. And if you or your friend or whoever might be involved with that, just try, if you can, to use whatever resources you're getting from that field to build skills in some other field so that you can move out of that occupation and out of that type of business that is going to be more wholesome, that will lead to more wholesome results. On topic of right livelihood, the Buddha was very specific about the kinds of livelihood not to partake in. And they are very relevant today, right? You know, selling weapons, selling intoxicants, maybe in a new format. But there are also other livelihoods today that arguably do harm as well, but didn't exist in the Buddha's time. Is there a case for updating this particular teaching to match today? Or do we need to find other aspects of the path to relate to these new professions? I'm thinking professions that might involve deceit, for example, um, maybe dishonest marketing, things like this. Right. Maybe um, rigging financial markets, Okay. anything that does harm in a modern context. Right. So what you're talking about is right speech and right action, right? So livelihood is about the choice that you make in terms of sustaining your livelihood, where you can have an investor, so to speak, or a marketer, using your example, a marketer who does things truthfully with practicing right intention, right speech, right action, and they're a marketer. Or you can have a marketer who practices wrong speech and wrong action who causes harm. But their livelihood being a marketer is still right livelihood, but it's that their speech and their actions are what's causing the harm. So it's all about here, this is the right livelihood. 
of how do you choose to sustain your livelihood. And if you choose to sustain your livelihood based on any of these five occupations, it's going to cause harm. But how you execute that job is completely up to you. Using another example, you can have a doctor who's healing patients, who's practicing well, good bedside manner, you know, doing all the right things and making all the right choices, but you can have a doctor who's stealing medicine out of the hospital and selling it on the street as well. But the occupation or the livelihood of a doctor isn't what's causing the harm. What's causing the harm is the fact that they're stealing. It's their wrong action that's causing the harm. So there's no need to update this teaching of right livelihood because the Buddha based it on the natural laws but you're just not seeing the delineation between the livelihood versus the speech and the actions within each livelihood. Does that make sense, Max? Yes. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. making sense. And one of the things I, I would just... like to add to this because of the question of uh, prostitution and selling uh, sexual services is I would like you to keep in mind that all the Buddhist teachings are about guidance. They are awakening the mind to this natural law of gamma about how our intention, speech, actions, livelihood will cause harm if we are practicing in a certain way. These aren't rules. These aren't obligations. These aren't things that you have to do or else so many bad, horrible things are going to happen to you. But what the Buddha is awakening your mind to here is here's the guidance. Here's the path. If you practice in this way, you will get yourself to a point where the mind will become peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, which means your life is going to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Whether you choose or when you choose to practice this path closely is totally up to you. So in the example, let's just say that I was in a situation where I had no other option literally explored everything and the only way to sustain my livelihood or my family's livelihood and there was just no other way on the face of the earth and I was not practicing these teachings very closely I might try to do everything else as perfect as possible but if I have that one livelihood that I just have no other option then I might do that but I realize that I need to put plans in place in order to move myself away from that livelihood. And I gave that example of using the income to kind of build skills and experiences in a career path that's going to get me out of this sexual trade. So this is all guidance that the more you learn it and practice it, you will see the benefits for yourself. But when or how you choose, or even if you choose to practice this, is completely up to you. But if you go through this Eightfold Path and you look at it closely, you can see how every single thing that the Buddha is teaching will absolutely lead to wholesome results or unwholesome results. So if you practice right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood in the way that I'm sharing with you through all the various resources, you will see that this will clean up your life practice and will improve your wholesome decisions and therefore there'll be more wholesome results because of it. I have a question from Uma. She asks, my neighborhood is affected by COVID-19. 
What is your advice on how to be content with the mind in this situation? It depends on what your mind is discontent about, right? Because remember with the Four Noble Truths, the mind is causing itself to be discontent. So you have to investigate what is causing the discontentness. Are you fearful that you're going to become sick and die? Are you fearful that your family is going to become sick and die? Are you fearful for your neighbors that they're going to become sick and die? You know, what is it that the mind is craving or desiring or attached to that's causing it to be discontent? And the way that I feel is when I go outside, if I got COVID-19, I'm not concerned because I know that more likely than not, I'm going to survive that no problem. That I'm 45, 46 years old. I don't have any underlying conditions. I will be able to get healthcare and I will pull through it just fine. I'm sure it's going to be uncomfortable, but I'll pull through it just fine. And then on the other side, if I got COVID-19 and I died, well, then that's just my time to die. It's done. It's over with. That's my life. I'm not holding on to my life and craving to live in this world that if it was the end of my life, then that was just the end of my life and I would just accept it. So if the mind's craving and expecting that it's never going to get sick and it doesn't recognize that as the human condition, you will get sick at some point multiple times throughout your life because that's part of the human condition. If the mind's craving permanent health, then yeah, when you're faced with COVID-19, you're going to potentially be discontent because the mind's expecting to never get sick. Or if you're craving and holding on to this life, expecting that you're going to live for a certain predetermined time and you get sick and die, then yeah, the mind's going to be discontent. So you've got to let go of this craving, desire, attachment, this longing with a strong eagerness to always be healthy. And you have to let go of this longing and strong eagerness that somehow you're going to live for some extended period of time. You have to just accept death when death comes and you have to accept sickness when sickness comes. There's no way around that. In the meantime, make wise decisions. This is protecting your contentedness. This is discernment, making wise decisions. When you go outside, wear a mask. When you go outside, maybe you go out at time of day when there's not many people on the street. You don't go to places where people are congregating in large numbers. When you do go outside and you're around people, keep a certain distance. This is discernment. This is wise decision making. But if you have either of these attachments that you're never going to get sick or you're holding on to your life, then the mind's going to be discontent. So you've got to find that middle where you can conduct your life and recognize that I can go outside, I can be safe, I can wear a mask, I can social distance, I can go out at certain hours when there's not many people, and that will keep me more safe. But if I get sick, well, I don't have any underlying conditions and I will probably pull through it just fine. Okay, we have no more questions. Okay, let's go through the mental discipline of the Eightfold Path. Step six is right effort. Right effort actually has four different components to it. What right effort is, is you know when something happens 
and you feel that kind of anger or that frustration starting to arise, you can almost feel the physical sensation in the body, right? This is being produced by the mind because the mind is displeased. The mind is starting to become discontent. Anger or frustration is starting to arise. And when that happens, you make a choice. You may not realize it now, but you make a choice. As that anger and frustration arises, you make a choice. Do I allow that to come into my speech and actions or not? If you allow it to come into your speech and your actions, that anger and frustration is going to cause lots of unwholesome decisions through your speech and actions, and it's going to cause a lot of unwholesome results. And this is why you find yourself in arguments or having problems with people, because when the anger comes up, you just let it go and you don't control the mind because you haven't trained the mind well enough. You can't control it. So it just comes out through your speech and your actions, hostility, anger, irritation. And that's why people treat you that way as well. But if you apply right effort, when you feel that anger or frustration arising, you apply effort to abandon that unwholesome mental state. So when you feel the unwholesome mental state arising, you cut it off and abandon it. That's right effort. That's one part of right effort is abandoning any unwholesome mental states that have arisen. Okay. This is a really great application of right effort that you can use in the moment. So in the moment, when you feel that anger, frustration arising, you need to cut it off and let it go. If that means to protect your contentedness, that you walk away from the conversation and you leave, and that's what you need to abandon the unwholesome mental state, then do that. That's protecting your own contentedness. If you feel comfortable staying there and you can just let it go, then you can do that too. There's 10 million right answers of how to do that. But what you don't want to do is allow that anger, frustration, irritation to come into your speech and your actions because that's when it's going to cause you problems because now you're going to be hostile towards a lot of people and that's where things bubble up and create a lot of hostility and aggression. And, you know, sometimes simple disagreements turn into fights, turn into physical assaults, people even turn to murder sometimes, right? So by applying right effort, when you feel that anger, frustration, even if you know it's the other person talking in an unkind, unpolite way, right? It doesn't matter what's right or wrong here. Even if somebody else is wrong in terms of their being unpolite, unkind, unfriendly, that doesn't mean that you automatically lash out to them with hostility because that's not going to create calmness and peacefulness in this situation. So even if someone else is hostile or angry or unkind, by you practicing right effort, when you feel that frustration arise, you can cut it off and abandon it. And the beauty is, is if you do this enough times over multiple months and practice right effort, eventually you get to the point where anger and frustration doesn't even arise. It's going to take time. It's going to take you practicing all the teachings and learning all the teachings and practicing all of those. But as you do and you learn how to apply these teachings, 
in more and more and more situations, you will get to the point where you've cut off anger and frustration, irritation, annoyance so frequently that you get to the point where you've eliminated this craving, this desire, this attachment, this mental longing with strong eagerness that the anger doesn't even arise because you've trained the mind so well that whatever happens, you can just let it go. Even if someone talks unkind, unpolite, disrespectful to you, you can just let it go. But that comes with training, right? So here, right effort, the four components is prevent any unwholesome mental states from coming into the mind. So don't allow any unwholesome mental states to come into the mind. So if you have never thought about killing another human being, for example, don't allow that to ever come into the mind. Prevent it from coming into the mind. And there's other unwholesome mental states as well. The second part is any arisen unwholesome mental states that come into the mind, abandon those. So as the anger or frustration or as a feeling to go out and have sex behind your partner's back or as the feeling of going to smoke cocaine or take heroin comes up, as that craving comes up, apply right effort to abandon that, right? That's an unwholesome mental state. Where as this feeling to lie comes up, abandon that, right? That's the second part of right effort. Then any wholesome mental states that have not come into the mind yet, arise those and bring them into the mind, cultivate them. So if you know that you're kind of a selfish person, then bring generosity into the mind. Or if you know that you've got ill will and kind of anger and hatred towards people, bring loving kindness and compassion into the mind. So any wholesome mental states that have not yet come into the mind, bring those into the mind. And then the fourth component here is any wholesome mental states that are already in the mind, support those, encourage those, continue to practice those, and don't allow them to fade. So if you are already practicing some of these good wholesome teachings, then continue to support those and encourage those. Don't allow them to fade in the mind. You can get more information on this in some of the other talks that I've done and in the book and videos and things like that. This is kind of a more surface level talk about the Eightfold Path, but right effort, I feel, is really a profound step on this path. Because if you can catch the anger before it comes into the mind and before you act on it with your speech and actions, you can cut it off and it won't affect anybody else. You might still be angry. You might still be feeling it, but at least you don't allow it to affect anyone else. And now you just have to work on your mind so that that anger doesn't keep arising. But at least it hasn't affected anyone else, right? And right effort goes along with step number seven, which is right mindfulness. Right mindfulness is awareness of mind, okay? This is awareness of mind where you become aware of the mind and what's in the mind. This is so important because without right mindfulness, you could never practice right effort, right? If I was unaware 
that anger or frustration was coming into the mind and I just plowed through life talking poorly to people, doing harmful actions to people, there's no opportunity to actually fix it. But if I have awareness of mind and I'm aware of the anger or I'm aware of the frustration, I'm aware of the guilt or the fear or the boredom or the loneliness or whatever it is coming into the mind, the shyness, if I'm aware of those things with right mindfulness, then I can apply right effort and I can actually take action in order to abandon unwholesome mental states and arise wholesome mental states. So these two, right mindfulness and right effort, really go hand in hand with each other. And then we move into step eight, which is right concentration. What concentration is, is the ability to develop singleness of mind through meditation, using breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation to train the mind and focus the mind through meditation practice. And it's also a byproduct of learning and practicing all the rest of the Eightfold Path. By you practicing all of these steps, the mind will become focused, concentrated, you will improve your memory, and you will get clarity of thoughts. You will be able to talk and speak with focus, with clarity, with memory, with improved clarity of mind. And this is where your practice becomes very beneficial because now your personal and professional relationships can really blossom because you can stay focused and centered and have a clear mind in your personal and professional life. So a lot of people around the world are practicing meditation. This is, you know, mindfulness and what people are thinking about mindfulness isn't really widely understood. The word mindfulness is kind of like a, a, a real common term that you hear people using around the world nowadays. And there's lots of people meditating. But people's understanding of what mindfulness is and actually how to meditate in the way that the Buddha taught is not quite there yet. But it's at least good that this word mindfulness is on the tip of people's tongues. And it's great that people are building a habit to actually do meditation. But if you understand and practice this teachings very closely, the way that I've laid out in the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, and you get in touch with these teachings through that book and through the talks that I've done, and you implement these teachings very readily and kind of gradually move them into your life, you will understand this path very, very closely, and you will then be able to experience the results. Because while a lot of people have mindfulness on the tip of their tongue and a lot of people are meditating, they're at the end of the path. They haven't understood the other parts of the path. So if all people are doing is meditating, and they may or may not be doing it the way the Buddha taught, but if all they're doing is meditating, but then they're going outside and causing harm through their speech, their actions, their livelihood, or things like this, then they're not going to get to enlightenment. This is why you can't meditate your way to enlightenment. You need meditation as part of your training, but you also need to learn and practice this entire path. 
which includes right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. If all we're doing is using the word mindfulness and we're not using it to really truly understand that it means awareness of mind, and if we're not truly meditating in the way that the Buddha taught, but even if we are doing those things, but we're not doing everything else, then the mind isn't going to move all the way towards enlightenment. So the idea is, is that we need to extinguish these discontent feelings through extinguishing the unwholesome decisions that we're making that's leading to harm in the world. By us harming in the world and causing harm, that harm is coming back to us. What this Eightfold Path is doing is giving us the teachings that our mind can then build wisdom in which to practice the teachings where we're not causing harm to others and therefore harm is not coming to us. So through having wisdom and good moral conduct, we're not causing harm, so therefore harm is not coming to us. And then by using the mental discipline to train the mind with right concentration, to be aware of the mind through right mindfulness, and then apply that through right effort with this mental discipline, we can now control our mind because we've trained it so well. And in no matter what situation we're in, whether someone's talking unkind to us or some good news or some bad news came to us, we can control the mind because we've applied this path over many, many months and years that we've gotten so in touch with what this Eightfold Path is, this life practice, that we can now implement it and practice it at will very closely. But it takes time to gradually learn it and gradually implement it over a period of time that you can then use it in all situations in daily life where you're constantly aware of this Eightfold Path and you can practice it like second nature, that you've soaked this into the mind so deeply that it becomes second nature. And this is why I mentioned at the beginning of our talk that it's impossible to learn about this too much, right? Because the more you learn about the Eightfold Path in the way that I share it in the book, the videos, the podcasts, and so forth, if you learn this Eightfold Path in detail and really soak it in the mind through applying it in daily life, you will gradually move the mind towards the enlightened mental state where the mind will be permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You will have focus, concentration, improved memory, clarity of mind. No matter what happens in life, whatever challenges that happen, your mind can stay peaceful, calm, serene, and you can apply these good teachings to resolve whatever challenge you're facing. And the mind will never, from that point, the more you practice and you attain enlightenment, you will never experience a discontent feeling ever again. And that's the beauty of Gautama Buddha's path, this path to enlightenment. Any questions on this? Yes, so we have a question from Manal. She asks, how would you protect your contentedness if you are working with your own children and you are in constant contact with them? Would I just walk away if they become testy or frustrated with my right efforts? 
I find myself in a fog of what is right action in those moments in the crux of teaching a lesson to my children and them questioning everything which they find unfavorable to them. The more that you learn and practice this path, then you can use it in order to teach your children, right? So the more and more that I learned this path, I used it in order to teach my son. And through teaching him, he now understands these teachings. And as a household, we all practice these teachings together. So if your children are not listening to what you're saying and they're testing you and they're kind of poking holes and not maybe respecting mom, well, part of the path is respecting parents and understanding that that creates good gamma. But you have to be able to teach that to them. And in order to teach it to them, you have to practice it. So by you practicing these teachings really well and seeing how they work, you can then teach it to your children so that they understand what it means for right intention, right speech, right action, and so forth. So if you've taught them what this path is and now they're being disrespectful in their speech, if they're not speaking at the right time, what they say isn't true, they're not speaking gently, it's not beneficial, it's not with a mind of loving kindness, if it's blameful, if they're not practicing right intention, which is harmlessness, then you can show that to them. But you can't show that to them now because you don't have anything to point to. But if you can sit down and help them understand what these teachings are, then when they're doing something that's not in line with this path, you can show them how their speech is not in line with this and you would like them to improve it. And that's where it's going to take patience and dedication for your own practice, but also teaching your children too. This is what I call cleaning up. You're going to have to clean up because first you have to clean up your own practice. You have to learn these teachings really well. You have to practice them very deeply. And because you didn't know these teachings, your children are doing things that now that you're learning, you would prefer them not to do, but you're going to have to clean that up by bringing these teachings into the family and helping them to understand them so that then when they're doing things that are outside of this path, you're going to need to point to them and show them in a kind, polite, caring way, very respectful way of how they need to be practicing this path more closely. But if you do it very hostile and angry and irritated, you're not practicing, so they're not going to receive the message. So yes, if you need to step away and calm the mind and wait a couple of hours or a couple of days before you go back and start talking to them and help them see some of the faults and things that they're not doing well, then you should do that. It's not going to help you if you try to teach them this while you're hostile or angry. So if you need to walk away, then do that. And that's okay. And what your kids learn is every time they're disrespectful to mom, she walks away and she's, she doesn't spend time with us. And that can be a very good lesson for them. That's their gamma. That's the result of their decisions. By them being hostile and speaking unkind to mom, mom leaves and walks away. And they'll learn as you teach them these teachings and they see that gamma 
they will learn more and more through your teaching that every time they speak unkind or unpolite, mom walks away and they're not going to like that and they will slowly, gradually change their behavior. But it's got to start with you. The Buddha said, one who sees me sees the teachings. One who sees the teachings sees me. What that essentially means is he was a deep practitioner of his teachings. He practiced what he preached. So if you go in trying to teach your children right speech, you've got to make sure that you have a really good history of practicing it yourself. So one who sees me sees the teachings. You've got to be a very good deep practitioner so that then you have credibility to be able to share these with your family members and they will be more likely to adopt them and practice them because they see mom's mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. They're the ones who are angry at each other, upset with each other, discontent with each other, but mom is just always perfectly peaceful. And of course, you've got to work towards that. But the more history that you've got, it'll give you more credibility in sharing these teachings with your children. I have a question from DJ on Zoom. What right action can we do when we are in a wrong livelihood as we have no other choice? Any advice? Thanks. Yeah, so the best thing I can think of if you're in a livelihood that you know is causing harm is to use whatever resources you have at your disposal to try to help you get out of that livelihood. If you're making some money or you have a way to build up some skills in some other livelihood, or the other way is using harmlessness, right intention, using right speech and right action, building relationships with other members in your community where you can potentially get another job away from the harmful livelihood then you can use these good wholesome teachings to be polite and be kind and be friendly to everybody around you so that you can then build up enough credibility and skills to then have a livelihood that isn't going to cause harm so that you can get away from that livelihood and it's going to potentially take time it's not going to be a quick thing you may need to you know, just take your time with it, and but keep your mind focused on the goal of where you're headed because you know that whatever livelihood that you're in that's causing harm, it's not going to be helpful for you or for the world. So find ways to move your skills in the direction of a wholesome livelihood and just make sure you stay focused on the goal. I have a question, David, about mindfulness. I was wondering if you can offer us some advice on how to establish the habit of mindfulness, any actions or choices we can make to make mindfulness uh, appear more? Yeah, there's two things here. One, of course, is meditation, right? That's where all these, this right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, that's why it's part of mental discipline, because they really all go together. By practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, where you train the mind to let go of the thoughts. Every time thoughts come into the mind and arise, you let them go. This is training the mind to have singleness of mind and develop awareness of mind because you're aware of the thought 
and you train the mind to let it go. This is an application of right effort. So in meditation, you're practicing awareness of mind, you're practicing right effort, and you're developing awareness of mind through a daily consistent meditation practice. That's the first thing. Everybody needs to have a daily consistent meditation practice. You can't get to enlightenment without meditation, but you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment only with meditation either. So meditation, breathing mindfulness meditation is the foundation of your practice. Then the next thing for creating right mindfulness is having that singleness of mind and maintaining that throughout your day by only doing one thing at a time. Too often in our modern society, we're encouraged to do multiple things at one time, or at least we think we're doing multiple things at one time. But really what that is, is it's the mind doing three or four or five things in rapid succession back to back, making you think you're doing three or four or five things at one time. But in reality, the mind is still only doing one thing at a time. It's just stringing them together so quickly back to back that you think you're eating your sandwich, talking on the phone and watching TV at the same time. But in reality, your mind is switching to each one of those so rapidly you think you're doing them all at one time, but you're actually doing one thing at a time. So because the mind can only do one thing at a time, and when you do one thing at a time, you will have the most awareness of mind possible because you're only doing one thing at a time. So don't ever attempt to do more than one thing at a time. Don't get into the habit of trying to do multiple things at one time because it's training the mind in the opposite direction of what you're trying to do. Always just do one thing at a time. When you first start doing this, if you're used to multitasking, when you first start practicing this way, of singleness of mind and doing just one thing at a time, it's gonna feel like things are very slow. It's gonna feel like everything's moving extremely slow and you're gonna feel like you're probably going to be unproductive and it's not helpful for you to do just one thing at a time. The mind's gonna wanna run and go back to doing so many things at one time. But what you've gotta keep focused on is you've got to have confidence in the Buddha's teachings and know that this is the right path to only do one thing at a time. And even though your mind's going to crave that overactivity, is don't allow it to do that. Just keep bringing it back to one thing at a time. And when you do one thing at a time, you'll be able to implement this entire path much more readily. Because when you're doing just one thing at a time, you can really focus on having right intention of harmlessness. And when you're doing just one thing at a time, you can really focus on right speech and make sure that you're hitting all of those five factors of well-spoken speech. And when you're practicing mindfulness, awareness of mind, and you're only doing one thing at a time, you can ensure that you're not causing harm with your bodily actions. So by bringing the mind down to just one thing at a time, it's gonna wanna crave and pull you back to this constant cycling of multiple things strung together, and it's gonna feel like you're gonna be unproductive, and you're gonna see everyone else around you running and bouncing off the walls, 
and you're going to think that that's what you need to do in order to be productive. But what you're going to realize is that by doing one thing at a time, you're actually going to be more productive because each decision that you make moment by moment is going to be more wholesome. You're going to have better intentions. You're going to have right speech, right action. So every single decision that you make in a personal relationship or professional relationships or whether it's a personal task or a professional task, it's going to be done in a much more wholesome way. So therefore, you're going to have better results as a part of that. Whereas if you're trying to do 10, 20 things at a time and you're haphazardly making lots of rash decisions, which aren't in the best interest of you in these teachings, then you're going to have a lot of stuff that you're causing harm and that's all going to come back and harm you and it's all going to come back and hurt you. So the way to kind of bring all of this down to singleness of mind and practice awareness of mind is just to do one thing at a time and then just make good, wholesome decisions. And then you don't have all this stuff to clean up afterwards. You can just move forward, move forward, move forward one decision at a time. And you'll find that you're going to have much better results this way. Whereas if you don't practice awareness of mind and you try to do multiple things, it's just going to cause a lot of harm to others and it's going to cause harm to you. And you're just going to endlessly be cleaning up all of the mistakes that you're making. Got it. Thank you, David. We have no more questions at this time. Okay. I've noticed that we've spent our two hours talking about the Eightfold Path and realizing that we've done that, it should have maybe just taken a little bit more time and dived into these a little bit more deeply because I feel like we don't have enough time to kind of go into chanting right now in terms of the typical teaching that I would give for chanting. But I want to say this about chanting. As you see here in this practice, it's all about training the mind, training the mind through meditation, but then training the mind to practice all of these steps of the Eightfold Path. Meditation is a primary focus of your practice. It's going to stabilize the mind. It's going to train the mind so that you can then control the mind. The more dedication, the more effort you apply to your meditation practice and get that well-established and well-rooted to be a consistent practice, the more results you're going to see in all the other parts of your life as you're implementing and learning these teachings and implementing them. Where chanting comes in is chanting eases the mind into meditation prior to meditation. The chanting that we do, it doesn't have any special powers. There's no special words that you can say or I can say that's going to instantly create goodness in our life. It doesn't happen that way. That's not true reality. Even you might see people teaching that a chant can immediately dissolve unwholesome gamma. It's going to immediately create wealth in your life. It's going to immediately do this, that, and the other thing. The words coming out of our mouth are nothing more than air and sounds. Those things have no ability to create wealth for us. The way that we create good things in our life is by making good, wholesome decisions through this Eightfold Path making good, wholesome decisions based on this Eightfold Path. One of the good, wholesome decisions that everyone needs to make 
is to learn and practice meditation. Chanting is really there in the past was a way to memorize the teachings and hand them down from generation to generation. But we've gotten away from that and some places will teach that there's this special power associated with these special secret chants. This is not what Gautama Buddha taught. Okay, the way that I use chanting is as a way to start focusing the mind, start building awareness of mind, start a building awareness of the breath to kind of ease the mind down into meditation so that I get more benefit out of the actual meditation practice. And then after meditating for a period of time, I use the chanting to come out of meditation and ease the mind back out. That's essentially what chanting is for. As I learned chanting, it really helped with memory. It helped to improve the memory and kind of fine tune and hone that. It also helped to give me an audible indication that my practice was improving. Because when you first start learning meditation, the mind can be pretty cluttered and pretty locked, right? And it's kind of hard day by day to kind of see that you may be making some progress, even though you are. You may have trouble seeing it or knowing that you're making progress. By chanting and using these chants that I share in chapter 11, you can learn them to improve your memory. You can learn them so that you have this nice, beautiful, audible sound to kind of ease the mind into meditation. And you can use chanting in order to become aware of the mind and aware of the breath to ease down into meditation and see that you're making progress in your practice. I've done other talks and there's YouTube videos and there's podcasts where I've gone step by step and taught the chanting in a very structured way and giving you lots of examples. So if you've tuned in today in order to learn chanting and that was something that was on your mind, I encourage you to go back into the podcast or into our YouTube channel and look for those videos about Buddhist chanting or look for that podcast about Buddhist chanting where I take it slowly and structured and walk you through how to learn and conduct Buddhist chanting. And I describe it in a lot of detail because what it's going to do is it's going to help you with this practice of meditation that's so important to develop right concentration. And that's the real goal is to develop this Eightfold Path. Whether you decide to chant as part of your practice or not isn't going to make a determination of whether you attain enlightenment or not. There's plenty of people, I'm sure, that have attained enlightenment who don't even chant at all. They don't chant at all. So chanting is not a requirement in order to attain enlightenment. But what is required is that you have a good, well-established meditation practice where you're developing right concentration. And if chanting helps you to do that, to develop your concentration, to develop your memory, and to get more benefit out of your meditation practice, then use it or use it to benefit you and help you in your meditation practice. Do it for a few weeks and see how it benefits you. Don't take my word for it that it's helpful. Practice it and see it for yourself. 
And then if it's helpful for you over a couple of weeks, then continue to develop it and continue to use it. But if you're not interested in using Buddhist chanting as part of your practice, that's fine too. But still make sure that you're meditating and you're developing a regular, consistent, dedicated practice where you're training the mind through meditation and ultimately using the benefits of that in daily life to practice this entire Eightfold Path. Max, I think we might have a few more questions. So I thought I would just pause here. Yeah. I can see that Tio's hand is up. So I'm going to ask to unmute you, Tio. Yeah, uh, my question is not really important, but uh, something happened yesterday. And like yesterday is the last day of my school uh, in this school year. And then like a lot of people are leaving and also social guide and some teachers are leaving. They will not be here next year anymore. At the time, like a lot of people, they feel sad and they cry. And like, I, I don't know, like even me and like, uh, I, I cry and I feel sad. Like, uh, why uh, we said when we have like to leave someone that like we love and uh, how can we reduce it like uh, maybe in the future? And uh, I think it's really harm myself. And I just cannot sleep because of it, like, because like the people that I have a good relationship with them, they're leaving. And mm-hmm. it's a really like a hard to feel. And then like, I feel like I harm myself, but I don't know how to do it. Even I take meditation and I cannot like reduce it at all. It's really difficult. Yeah, this is a perfect example of why the Buddha taught right view, the Four Noble Truths. What he's saying is, At his school, there's some teachers that have been there for a while and all the students really admire these teachers. And now the teachers are leaving. They're no longer going to teach at this school. And a lot of the students are sad. They're crying. He's even mentioned that he's having trouble sleeping and eating. Right. This is the discontent mind. This is what happens when the mind is discontent. And it comes back to right view, the Four Noble Truths is that you are causing the discontent mind because the mind is craving, desiring, attaching. It's having this longing with a strong eagerness for permanence. The mind wants permanence. And now because of the impermanence, the teachers are leaving, the mind is discontent, right? So that is the second noble truth. You're causing it yourself. All the students who are crying and upset and sad, they're causing that themselves because their mind is holding on. It's attached. It's got this mental longing with a strong eagerness, this craving, this desire, this attachment. The only way to get to a content mind is the third noble truth, which is eliminate that longing and strong eagerness for permanence. You have to recognize on an intellectual level that The teachers can't stay here forever. They're going to move. They're going to change. The the teachers are going to come and go. There's no teacher in this school that is permanent, right? Nothing is permanent except for enlightenment. So yeah, they got to go. So the minds just got to let them go. And understanding it on an intellectual level is one thing. Yeah, I understand. My teacher's got a new job. They got to go, right? But deeper inside the mind, the mind doesn't accept impermanence because you haven't soaked the teachings into the mind deep enough and you haven't trained the mind 
closely enough with breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity to train the mind to let go. So the mind's holding on. So the reason why this is happening is because you're not enlightened yet. And that's one of the ways that you know that you're not yet enlightened is because you're experiencing this discontentedness. I would encourage you to use it as motivation and encouragement to show you, yeah, I don't like feeling like this. I don't like to be sad. I don't like these feelings of discontentness that's happening just because my teacher is leaving. I would like to use this as motivation to continue to learn the Buddhist teachings, to continue to train the mind and work to a point where these type of things can happen and the mind just recognizes it as part of daily life and we just let it go. Okay, thank you, teacher. I appreciate you teaching me. I'm really glad that you spent time over the last few years. I've learned a lot from you. Be well. That's loving kindness. That's true love. Right now, you said you love your teachers, and I'm sure you do at a certain level. You love them in terms of you would like to see them be well, but the mind is mistaking love for attachment. The mind is trying to hold on to them and it doesn't want them to leave. But if the mind truly loves them and wants to see them be well, then you would say, okay, whatever you need, whatever you would like to do in your life, go do it. Enjoy. Thank you for what you've contributed to my life. Be well and let them go. Right? It's like letting a bird out of a cage and just letting it fly, fly away. If you try to keep this bird in the cage, you're going to crush it. It's going to die or it's going to outgrow this cage. So you've got to let things go and just let them fly away because not everything can stay in your life permanently, including your own life. You can't keep your own life permanently. Everything's got to leave you someday, including your teachers. So just let them go. Thank you. Yep, you're welcome. But this is an indication that to keep training the mind with breathing mindfulness meditation and practice generosity. You know, show your teachers that you appreciate their time, their effort, their dedication that they taught you, but just let them go. Let them go. Be well. <laughs> okay, we have no more questions. Okay. So thank you guys for joining. I apologize that I didn't cover Buddhist chanting in terms of the level of depth that I was planning to cover it today. I actually had planned to go into a lot of detail in teaching you guys Buddhist chanting, but I know that I've done that in previous sessions. So I felt like a really nice review and kind of getting into the Eightfold Path was important since we covered that about three to four months ago in this program i felt it was important to kind of review that and then there's been a lot of new people that have joined us over the weeks and months so i felt like it was a good time to kind of get into the eightfold path so i wasn't attached to teaching chanting i wasn't holding on to it i wasn't determined that i had to do this i didn't have this hard expectation of holding on to it so I don't feel guilty that I haven't taught it. I don't feel shameful that I haven't taught it. I don't feel sad that I haven't taught it. I'm not angry. I'm not frustrated. I'm not irritated. We just went wherever the conversation needed to go. 
And as we started talking about the Eightfold Path, there was more and more questions about it, so we just stuck with that. Whereas if my mind was holding on and I was craving and I had desire, attachment, if I had this mental longing that I've just got to teach chanting before we get off of this online session, then the mind would be discontent. The mind would either be angry or frustrated or irritated. I would maybe feel guilty or shameful or irritated or annoyed or what have you. But because I wasn't holding on to the chanting, I'd prepared for it. I was planning to teach it, but I just kind of let it go because you guys were interested in talking about the Eightfold Path and there was benefit there in talking about that. So this is how by practicing Gautama Buddha's teachings, no matter what you encounter, the mind can always be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because you don't hold anything so tightly and so closely. This is one of the beauties of really practicing to that level that nothing will ever make you discontent because you realize that you're making your own self discontent. You're making the mind discontent yourself and you train it so well that nothing will ever cause it to be discontent because you eliminate this craving, anger, delusion, or ignorance, or unknowing of true reality. These three poisons, these three unwholesome roots, these three fires that I talk about, right? Craving, anger, and ignorance, or greed, hatred, and delusion, or unknowing of true reality. Realizing non-self, dissolving the ego. This is the way. The eightfold path is your daily practice. You've got to learn this deeply and you've got to practice it. If you spent weeks and weeks and months and months just diving into the eightfold path and understanding how the Four Noble Truths and the five precepts and all the other teachings about the natural law of gamma and everything else really connects into this Eightfold Path, you would be doing yourself a very, very, very good service to understand this Eightfold Path deeply. So continue to learn, continue to practice your meditation, continue to learn the Eightfold Path and dive in really, really deeply into it through the book, through the podcast, through the videos. I've covered the Eightfold Path in a lot more depth than I did today in previous talks. So be sure you explore this and learn it really, really well. This is the path to enlightenment. Your mind will eliminate discontent feelings if you learn and practice it very closely. The more and more you practice it, the mind will gradually be able to eliminate the discontent feelings the more you practice. And even if you don't attain enlightenment in this lifetime, but you get closer and closer and closer, you're going to have a better rebirth. Should you need to be reborn, you're going to be reborn in a better destination. On Sunday at nine o'clock Thai time, whatever time that is in your region of the world, we're going to be discussing chapter 19 which is titled, God's Creative Action, You Have Free Will. Gautama Buddha never denied the existence of God. His objective wasn't to either prove or disprove God's existence, but he did provide teachings about this 
and I would like to share with you what I know about what Gautama Buddha taught about God and also give you examples from my own life of things that I learned as well. You don't actually need to believe in God or understand God in order to attain enlightenment. So you don't need that as part of your practice. But if you do have an understanding or a belief in God, then I will teach and share with you how you can maintain that while still learning and practicing these teachings to attain enlightenment. Keep learning, keep practicing, keep meditating, and I'll see you then. So have a very good rest of your day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.